This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We already have our first guest on the line, and he is none other than Kyle Malin, editor of the Michigan Information Research Service newsletter, MERS, as it is affectionately called in Lansing. Kyle Malin, thank you for being our guest. It's my pleasure, Bill. Frequent listener. Uh, glad to be on. Well, let me ask you about something historical. I know we've got so much other stuff going on right now. People are thinking, why waste time on history when history is being made right before our eyes? But let's uh, talk about Republicans uh, not doing too well down in the city of Detroit and Wayne County, not just now, but I mean, historically for a long time. I mean, there have been no Republicans in the legislature from the city of Detroit how did that happen, and when did it kind of stop for good? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that we've taken a look at. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting to see how uh, political uh, folks, uh, or how I guess political trends shift in different areas. You know, it's hard to imagine, but there was a period of time, Bill, that you know of that uh, Republicans uh, pretty much were unanimous in the legislature, where. There was very, very, very few Democrats. I mean, going back to the 19-teens and the 1920s, uh, and that included the city of Detroit. And, and things started to change in that regard um, as we approached uh, the New Deal or uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, Roosevelt programs uh, during the Great Depression. And African-Americans uh, came to the city of Detroit looking for jobs, and they were courted by Democrats. And uh, the, the social programs that were being pitched by the uh, president at the time to uh, assist people during uh, the Great Depression uh, did appeal to them. And so you started to see more African-Americans getting involved in politics, and when they did, they were supporting Democrats. Again, uh, Democrats were also the party of labor, um, and uh, as these uh, laborers, uh, folks coming from the South, um, began joining unions, they became Democrats. But really what swung the tide was the Civil Rights Act and uh, other initiatives in the 1960s to make it uh, more fair and easier for African Americans to vote, uh, to end discriminatory practices, to make it illegal. And the Democrats were at the forefront of those efforts. And uh, Republicans, quite frankly, just were not. And what you had were Dixiecrats like Strom Thurmond uh, bolt from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And since that time, uh, African-Americans have been, it's almost been a cultural uh, phenomenon where they've just, just inevitably just supported Democrats. It's been their default. And uh, in African-American communities, that's just what you are. You're just a Democrat. You just ride it, whether you like it or whether you like what they're doing or not, because you know that when it comes right down to it, you feel like they're going to be on your side uh, more often than Republicans. They're going to feel your pain more. So what we've seen here is that the city of Detroit, just historically, um, you think of, well, if you're a legislator, you're going to be a Democrat. And that has been the case. But how long has it been since a Republican has represented a seat entirely within the city of Detroit? And I had to go back 
all the way back to 1968 uh, to find somebody where this had, had occurred. And as it turned out, he happened to be a, an old colleague of yours, which I just thought was uh, just absolutely fantastic, uh, Weldon Yeager, who was um, uh, a, uh, um, a former workers' compensation department director. He won in Detroit's 17th district. He was 46 at the time, and it was just during the time, just kind of at the tail end of the whole white flight phenomenon that happened in the 50s and the 60s where folks who were white went to the suburbs and African-Americans um, uh, just slowly kind of uh, populated the neighborhoods then, and they just became predominantly African-American. And uh, he was successful in, in that district. He served one term and uh, decided after that one term that he was going to uh, run for Secretary of State, but wasn't successful. Uh, and then eventually he actually did uh, get the nomination to be the Secretary of State nominee, but he didn't win. But um, he uh, he was the last one, and, and there really wasn't that many before 19, the 1950s or a couple others like Anthony Licata, uh, who did it as well. Uh, but that was kind of a fluke incident where he was running against Jimmy Hoffa. and uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa, Hoffa Jr. Was, Jr. Jimmy Hoffa Jr., thank yeah, you. Yeah. Um, and uh, just was uh, uh, it was kind of a fluke situation, as you're well aware, that uh, the Republicans uh, went ahead and decided they're just going to put a ton of resources in Lakata, and uh, Hoffa thought he was just going to skate through, and uh, he got punked by just a hundred and some <laughs> votes. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just mention one thing: Weldon Yeager actually did not win the Republican nomination in 1970 for Secretary of State. Emil Lockwood, the Senate Majority Leader, did, but then. He got beaten by Richard Austin, beginning a 24-year run by Richard Austin as the Secretary of State. And Weldon faded into political oblivion. <laughs> I remember him well. Uh, no, but but didn't he run again? Didn't he try again later in the 80s and wasn't successful? Uh, he may have, but he didn't win. Yeah. Right. He, right, he, yeah, did, yeah. he didn't win in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't win. Okay, well, then what about Wayne County as a whole? I mean, the same thing. I mean, aren't we at this point, I think, for the first time in history, outside the city of Detroit, but within Wayne County, which is huge in population outside the city of Detroit, there are no Republicans representing. uh, There's a Republican representing part of Wayne County down in the southern edge, but he doesn't live in Wayne County. He lives in Monroe County. And then I don't think there's anybody in the state Senate representing any piece of Wayne County right now. Is there? No, there's not. No. When the legislative term kicked off in 2019, it marked the first time since the Republican Party's founding that the Republicans have not had a resident from Wayne County, Michigan's largest county, serving in either the state House or the state Senate. And the reason why there's always been somebody is that the the Republicans have always either counted on, like, the gross points to have a member or Livonia or Northville. Um, And then even in recent years with Pat Somerville, they had somebody in Trenton, uh, someone in kind of the downriver area, who would be successful. You know, we remember Bruce Patterson. He was around in the Livonia area. Livonia was always kind of like that last, like, bastion. Right. Uh, but when Lori Pahutsky was successful in the state house and uh, Dana Polhanke was successful in the Senate, that knocked the Livonia piece out of it. And then during redistricting, the last redistricting, in order to make the um, the necessary uh, districts that you need to make um, what they call majority 
minority districts, which is that we have a majority of, uh, or we have uh, districts where the majority of the population is minorities. And because of the Federal Civil Rights Act, you got to keep that number consistent throughout the years. And so what they had to do is they had to split the points in half. And so uh, the Gross Points, Gross Point Shores and Gross Point Woods and all those over there, they used to be condensed into one district so the Republicans were competitive. But because they had to make um, some majority-minority districts, they had to cut those in half. And so the Democrats um, basically, I mean, that was just a free pass. The Democrats were then going to win both of those seats then, and that's exactly what they did. So, yeah, uh, this is the second straight term. Uh, it's the only two terms in history where Wayne County does not have a Republican legislator living within Wayne County. Right, and I think actually the next county up to be overtaken totally by Democrats looks like Oakland County. I mean, Oakland yeah. County, which has been considered a Republican bastion for most of the last half century, all of a sudden today, and I'm not sure about this, but I suspect that this may be the first time in history since the Republican Party was founded in 1854 in the 19th century that not a single U.S. representative seat in the Congress is held by a Republican. What do you think about that? Are you going to study up and give us an answer yeah, think, on that? Yeah, you piqued my interest, Bill. I think I'm going to take a look at that. <laughs> and, and you know what? Was, what makes that even more interesting is that there's actually four congressional seats in Oakland County, and it is striking that none of the four are represented by a Republican. Right. Amazing. Listen, we got to take a break here. Time goes fast, but stay tuned. We'll be back with more from Kyle Malin. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Kyle Malin, who is editor of MERS Newsletter in Lansing. And, Kyle, we did some history uh, a few minutes ago, but I want to pull us up to the present time. And uh, an expert in infectious diseases, a physician, I think, at one of the hospitals in Detroit, just described uh, what's going on with COVID right now in Michigan as a, quote, runaway train, unquote, where are we with COVID right now in Michigan? And I'll get into how Governor Gretchen Whitmer seems to be addressing that. Uh, new cases are getting as high as they've ever gotten. Uh, earlier this week, we had a, a new case number for the for the last 24 hours or the 24 hours prior. That was the second highest that we've seen in the state to date. Um, we got to go back to November when uh, we had that second surge where the numbers were bad. But this third surge, according to the health officials yesterday at Beaumont and Henry Ford, uh, were extremely concerned. They said the numbers are really bad. Uh, we had um, the um, uh, Dr. Nick Kelpin, or Gilpin uh, say that uh, the um, uh, staff is strained, uh, that their uh, facilities are increasingly tight as they're getting now we're seeing um, folks in their 50s and their 40s showing up at the hospital as opposed to folks in their 80s and 70s. And uh, the, folks, uh, you know, the folks who are showing up are sick. They said that uh, the, the chances of mortality, the, folks, the chance of these folks dying is not as uh, severe as those who were older, uh, but it's still very concerning and they still need care. And uh, the hospitals are <clears throat> filling up. But, you know, what I found interesting this past week uh, is that 
On Thursday, Janae Caldoun, the, the uh, state's chief medical executive, told WDT that uh, Michigan's situation was dire and that everything was on the table as far as combating what's happened. Uh, she said that she was very concerned about what was going on with COVID cases and hospitalizations and deaths. And then later in the day, Gretchen Whitmer was on national TV. She was on uh, ABC News Live, and she said, we're starting to see things look as though they might be slowing down a bit. And that was, <laughs> that was based on because the numbers that day were down from, like, in the 8,000 range to 6,300. So there was a, there was a one-day drop. So, I mean, I mean maybe, maybe, that, maybe it does drop. You know, with these, with these cases, you really got to do kind of a seven-day average to really kind of balance things out to see really where you're at. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think she's hoping. Uh, she doesn't want to see Michigan continuously be among the nation's highest in COVID cases, which we are right now and we have been for a week or two. She, this is not the type of notoriety she wants because it puts additional pressure on her to do restrictions. And, Bill, she just doesn't want to do them right now. Well, why doesn't she want to do them right now? I mean, that's the real question. I mean, despite whether you might oppose the governor putting on more restrictions, you kind of almost at this point expect her to put them on, given these figures. And yet she's not. She's resisting that. Uh, Why is this? Why is this her approach at this point? Well, I think there's two things. Uh, first of all, I think from a practical standpoint, I think she's worried about people not following them and putting strains on public or on uh, public safety officers, the attorney general, prosecutors, because what you're going to have is you're going to have more people daring the, uh, the authorities, uh, even her regulatory people, uh, daring these authorities to go ahead and find me. Go ahead and find me. Go ahead and put me in jail, just like you did with Marlena Pavlov's hackney there in Holland or uh, Carl Mankey, the barber in Owasso, just, you know, go ahead and throw the book at me. Uh, I'll just take it to court, and, you know, I can be a cause celeb, and maybe I'll be successful, or maybe I won't, but I'm going to, you know, keep fighting, and the press is going to keep covering these kind of cases. Um, and you're going to get more of that. You know, as this drags on, there's going to be more, and does she really want that headache? Um, you know, your power is only as good as, as to the extent, as a leader, to the extent that people are willing to follow you. And if people aren't willing to follow you, then you lose your effectiveness down the road. So I think there's that problem. Uh, Two, from a political standpoint, I think she feels like she's probably shot all the bullets in the chamber that she has on this particular issue as it comes to restrictions. Um, You know, people have been willing followers for a long period of time and, uh, by and large, have uh, gone along with this. uh, But they're at the end of the rope. And, um, you know, she was able to do restrictions for a period of time before Michigan had vaccines or before anybody had vaccines, for that matter. And so she got us through basically to the point where the vaccines are available and older people who are most at risk of dying could start to get vaccinated. And once they started getting vaccinated, um, then she could say, well, you know what, you know, and, and she hasn't said this. This is just kind of my analysis on it. She can say, you know what, people are, are going to get sick, but at least this population is not as at risk of dying as other populations. And I'm tired of fighting the Republicans on this. They're starting to get traction with the public with their argument that we shouldn't have any restrictions at all. Look at all these other states. They seem to be doing fine. And she's kind of kind of let go of the rope on it and decided that if we're going to do any more restrictions, she needs Republicans with her in support. And right now they're saying, hey. This, you're doing a great job, Governor. In fact, 
the mask <laughs> mandate and the 50% on restaurants, get rid of that too while you're at it. <laughs> Which, of course, she's not going to do, but, uh, you know, that's just kind of the situation she's in right now. Well, what about these trips to Florida taken by key aides, her chief operating officer and her newly confirmed director of the Department of Health and Human Services, Elizabeth Hertel, who is married to Democratic State Senator Curtis Hertel. They took off with their family to Florida uh, this week for vacation, and uh, that's despite the governor saying, you know, don't go to Florida. Don't do this. I mean, what is going on here? Yeah, well, they did. They they went to Gulf Shores, Alabama, which, um, I, in taking a look back, uh, the Hertel family has done for a while. They they have an affinity for that that area uh, in the springtime. It seems to be their go to <laughs> place. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it has it does show a sense of it, it is a change in direction for sure. Early in this pandemic, obviously we were all in shutdown uh, for a, a period of time. We remember that, and then there was. You know, there wasn't necessarily travel restrictions in the sense that she said you can't go out of state. But she did say that we don't want you to go to your cabin. Uh, we don't want you to operate a motorboat. So we all remember this. And, and it's been kind of emboldened in our brains that, you know, if, if you really don't have to go somewhere, it's probably a good idea that you don't go, um, that you kind of stay around. Uh, we all did the Zoom Thanksgivings and the Zoom Christmases and, and all that. And, and we realize that we shouldn't be doing social gatherings. So when we see folks in the administration saying, you know, saying, well, we're going to go ahead and go on vacation, we're going to do it safely, uh, I think the public kind of feels like, well, Jesus seems like a change of message to us. And is there is there a double standard going on here, or are we just kind of missing the, did we miss the memo on some of this stuff? <laughs> you, know, and to, you know, and if you look around, though, I mean, I, I talked to a parent or a my wife talked to a parent uh, during spring break, said that she was on her way to Florida with her family, and she said Indianapolis was jam-packed with cars with Michigan license plates. You know, and she said this is typical <laughs> spring break traffic. Like, there was no pandemic at all. It's just like a regular course of business. So, you know, the administration sees that. So, you know, the people, people are tired of it. They're going to start doing the things that they're used to doing. Um, and so, in a sense, it has been a runaway train, and and Whitmer has just had to get out of the way or else she's going to get run over by it. <laughs> well, listen, honestly, we could go on talking about this ad nauseum, but we've run out of time. But, Kyle Malin, you've done a great job of laying out the scenario here in Michigan at the present time, and it continues to be uh, an incredible story. Thank you, Kyle Malin, for being our guest. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime, Bill. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us Fred Zwolick, who is spokesman for Unlock Michigan, and he's also a partner with the political consulting firm Strategy Works. Welcome, Fred Zwolick. Happy Friday. Okay, Fred, uh, explain to our listeners for sure, remind them, what is Unlock Michigan? It was a very simple initiative petition drive to repeal the 1945 law that Governor Whitmer abused and used to shut down the state. Uh, it was never intended to be, you know, something that could give a governor the ability to go it alone and govern unilaterally for an entire year. Um, so we decided to, to work to repeal that. And then hopefully, you know, some new emergency management system would be put in place to replace it. 
Okay, back in the fall when you guys at Unlock Michigan were getting your petition signatures together and you had a fantastic success rate, I've never seen anything like it, collecting as many signatures as you did, I think half a million in a matter of weeks. Uh, it looked like this was the silver bullet uh, that people opposed to the governor's unilateral executive orders wanted, and that is it would stop her. She couldn't do that anymore. But uh, even though this has not yet been certified, has not yet gotten to the legislature, has not yet been enacted, the governor decided, uh, you know what, uh, I'm going to defy not only the meaning of this petition drive, but the U.S., excuse me, the state Supreme Court ruling that the riot act was unconstitutional, and I'm just going to use obscure state laws like uh, public health uh, statutes, and I'm going to have my director of health and human services simply uh, do the same thing I've been doing all along. So is the Unlock Michigan petition drive going to prove to be as meaningful if it does get enacted or is on the ballot and approved by voters in 2022 as you thought it would be when you launched it? I guess we underestimated her willingness to just brazenly, you know, sort of use and abuse whatever law she could. She knows she has time on her side, right? Because, you know, it takes a minimum of six months to a year to challenge her authority on anything and have it work through the Supreme Court. We think it's, you know, the, the Right Act was declared unconstitutional. and We still think it's important to uh, follow through with Unlock Michigan and take it off the law for off the books for good. Because my experience, Bill, you've been around Lansing a long time, is that bad ideas never really die. They just take naps for a while. So we <laughs> want to kill this one off for good and uh, and not have uh, this new Supreme Court overturn the, the ruling from last year and breathe new life back into this law. You know, the Secretary of State is taking an uncommonly long time to process uh, these petitions is this about the longest period that you have ever seen uh, with an initiative petition being scrutinized by the Secretary of State and getting to the point where the Board of State canvassers would certify it and send it to the legislature? Yeah, we'll be in position to have it certified uh, by the end of next week, and that's really good news. It's taken just an amazing amount of time to get started. And I think that you know, it's a bit of a pretext that they use. They say, well, you know, this would be destined for the 2022 ballot, so what's the rush? It doesn't need to be finalized until July of 2022. But that's the way it would work with but this was a constitutional amendment. And the only thing that could happen next is to put it on the ballot for approval. In this case, it goes to the legislature where it can be approved immediately. So there should have been much more urgency in the sort of the canvassing process. It's just not that hard. They're reviewing a sample of just 500 signatures. So the amount of work, they didn't have to review all 540,000 of these things. It's just 500. Yeah, well, do you think the Secretary of State, quite frankly, uh, an ally of Governor Whitmer, is just trying to run out the clock? I mean, there's another group affiliated, obviously, with the Democrats uh, that has filed a bunch of challenges to the petitions. I mean, it looks to me like they're just hoping they can gum up the works so that maybe it'll never get to the legislature. And their lawsuit is particularly bonkers. Even for Mark Brewer, this is crazy. And he's, you know, been out there sort of tormenting people in this space for a really long time. But what his claim is, is that the Secretary of State's office has failed for over 20 years to properly issue rules for canvassing signatures. So in his view, they shouldn't review ours at all. 
they should throw out the existing rule book and write an entirely new one and then judge the validity of our signatures according to whatever new rules come out of this process maybe a year from now. And that's just so ridiculously bonkers. It's hard to even overstate how unfair it would be to have us go begin and end the petition drive with one rule book and then have the petitions validated with a whole new set of rules, and God knows what they'll even say. Uh, It's just crazy. Well, let's say that eventually, however long it takes, the Secretary of State and the Board of State Canvassers does certify the petition, sends them to the legislature. The so-called 40-day clock uh, starts running. That's the 40 days the legislature has to consider them. All they need is a majority in the House and Senate to certify the petition language uh, abolishing the 1945 Riot Act to have it enacted without the governor's signature. It end runs Governor Whitmer. She has no part in this. Do you you think they will do that, or do you think there's actually a chance it will be on the ballot in 2022? Do you think maybe the Republican majorities in the House and Senate might decide, you know what, it would be nice to have this on the ballot? In, in 2022, which they could do by simply taking no action on the petitions. They could. I think the, the odds of them exceeding the 40 days are lower than the odds of them getting it done in fewer than four. Uh, I think there's a, a, a great anxiousness to send a message to, to Governor Whitmer that, you know, her days of doing everything by herself need to end. And, you know, the legislature gets a role in these things. There was never an idea that one governor could govern unilaterally by decree uh, from wherever those decrees are being issued, like maybe Gulf Shores, Alabama, uh, that that could just go on forever <laughs> with no legislative input. Yeah, what about the uh, trip of Health and Human Services Director Elizabeth Hertel with her husband Curtis Hertel, state senator, taking this trip down to Gulf Shores, and also I think uh, Governor Whitmer's chief operating officer taking uh, a similar trip uh, while the governor has been saying all along people should not be going down to Florida, this is terrible, uh, they may come back with COVID and infect us all, uh, there seems to be two different standards here, right? Well, it, it started with her husband, Governor Whitmer's husband, wanting to launch his boat when that wasn't even legal. And he was throwing his weight around and don't you know who I am kind of thing. Maybe he could have just taken the hotels for a boat ride somewhere and that could have satisfied their, their need to travel. <laughs> Um, It's just shameful. I mean, this is probably one of the most botched vaccine rollouts of any state in the country. And so here's this person, her COO, who is managing the vaccine rollout, decides now is a really good time to take a vacation. Uh, The state's got the worst COVID spike in the country, and her own son is home with COVID. Wow. I don't know. Aren't you supposed to go on spring break with your kid as opposed (laughs) to just going and leaving them home? What is that? All of it's just crazy talk. But I think, you know, there's a whole lot of people who wanted to take a vacation this year who didn't because they were told it wasn't safe. And now they feel like morons for having listened to these people who obviously think there's a different set of rules for themselves. What about funding for petition drives? I mean, one of uh, former Democratic State Chairman Mark Brewer's contentions in these um, complaints about your petitions has been the funding mechanism. And uh, there was... Uh, challenge to the funding uh, filed by a former Lansing attorney that the Secretary of State threw out and has disregarded. Uh, Is this going to make any difference at all in the way petition drives are funded uh, later this year for other 
issues or maybe even, uh, you know, this issue if the Democrats decide to challenge uh, the Unlock Michigan petitions that may be enacted by the Michigan legislature? No, you know, the the, the pretext that they used was that there was nonprofit organizations who gave Unlock Michigan sums of money repeatedly. So they'd give me a chunk of money here, and then a couple weeks later, I'd get another chunk of money. Now, Bill, I wish they would have just given me two or three million dollars all at once, and then I could say, <laughs> "Okay, I'll let you know how that works out." But responsibly, they decided to provide assistance as performance warranted. So, what if we were to listen to Bob Brandt, Mark Brewer? Nonprofits would have to just blindly give lump sums to organizations and then just hope it all works out, as opposed to funding them in stages as the performance, you know, demonstrates is needed. Uh, I wish it had been easier and they just all give me one big giant chunk of money, but they're not dopes, so they didn't. They made me actually perform well. How do you look at the way Governor Whitmer has reacted to the news that we're being inundated with about this catastrophic runaway train of COVID-19 cases? Uh, she seems to have kind of backed away from her policy of the last year, which Unlock Michigan has been fighting. Uh, and it's bizarre. Most people can't understand her attitude. Well, on line one, she's got the White House yelling at her for trying to pretend that it's their problem and that they haven't given her enough vaccine. And then on line two, she has her pollster telling her that her favorability ratings are cratering because she doesn't really seem very competent anymore. So she's having a rough couple of weeks, and it's, she brought it all on herself. Decision maker, and you're calling all the shots, you're going to get all the blame, too. Okay, we'll be back in a minute with more from Fred Zwolick. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with Fred Zwolick, and he is spokesman for Unlock Michigan, also a partner with Strategy Works, and... We've talked a lot about the Unlock Michigan petitions, but I just want to ask you, Fred Zwolick, what about the state of the Michigan Republican Party right now? Uh, How big is the split and is it real and can it be overcome between the so-called Trump faction of the Republican Party and maybe traditional conservative Republicans uh, Ron Weiser is the chairman now of the party for the third time in history. Uh, he is the chairman. And uh, how is he negotiating this? How is he doing? Uh, and can he pull it off in time for the November 2022 election? Uh, this all gives me flashbacks to when we were overcoming the rift between the party regulars and the Tea Party activists who emerged on the scene in, in 2010. And then I had flashbacks then to the days when we were trying to overcome the rift between party regulars and the Pat Robertson and Jack Kemp supporters who emerged a million years ago when they were running for president. Um, these parties are pretty resilient. They, they bring newcomers in. They assimilate them. They, sometimes there's some bickering and there's some hurt feelings when somebody gets their toes stepped on or they had always been the county vice chair and now they're not anymore. So somebody's been a snit. It, it all it's no big deal. We've seen this movie before. Well, Ron Weiser 
obviously got himself in at least temporary hot water with his comments about uh, the three main constitutional officers of Michigan being, quote, the three witches, unquote, and they should prepare themselves to be burned at the stake next year and (laughs) calls for him to resign from the University of Michigan Board of Regents by the Democrat regents on that board. Uh, do you think this is blowing over? It's kind of like a week-long story, or is it going to persist? Oh, it's going to blow past. No, it, you know, Ron's an outstanding chairman. He keeps getting reelected chairman because he does the job so darn well. He knows how to play that cell phone of his like a Stradivarius when it comes to funding the party's resource needs. And he's just going to keep doing that. Um, you know, people yapping that he you know said something that they find unpleasant is not like real breaking news anymore. Um, so I, I just don't think that's a, a major issue. Okay, Fred Zwolick, uh one thing I think that's paramount for the Republicans is they got to come up with a strong candidate for governor next year. They've got to come up with a quality nominee, assuming Governor Whitmer is going to be running for re-election, however weakened she may be now by her handling of the pandemic. Um uh, who is on the horizon? Who do the Republicans have that they could run? Uh, could it be John James? Uh, could it be somebody else? What do you think? You know, I think we've had the best track record of winning these tough races when we've looked to outside of the normal process, as opposed to just looking under the Capitol dome. Um, there's just a lot more appeal to somebody who's not been part of the sausage making that goes in, you know, goes on in Lansing. And I think we ought to do that again. And I'm pretty excited about a, a, a political outsider from the western side of the state named Tudor Dixon, who's considering a candidacy. Um, but there's also two other people already in the race, probably a third, all political outsiders. Um, but, you know, it, I think people realize that raising the 30 to $50 million it takes to fund this kind of enterprise is hard. And uh, that it's everybody's going to have to get on board and, and try to get this done, because the one thing we know Gretchen Whitmer does exceptionally well is bring in money. And uh, and she can, you know, cover up a lot of mismanagement and um, and, and sort of just overreaching that she's uh, sort of been guilty of these past few years by just showering the state with television ads. And uh, we'll, we'll have a competitive campaign. We always do. You mentioned this candidate from the west side of the state. I'm not sure most people have heard who this person is. How do you spell her name? I I assume it's a female? Yes, Tudor, T-U-D-O-R, Dixon. Um, She's a a news host on a a streaming news platform. She's spent her life in the steel business. Uh, She probably knows her way around a factory floor better than any governor since George Romney. just an absolutely wonderful communicator and campaigner, and she's had enough. She, she knows that, you know, Gretchen Whitmer has made a mess of this state and that it's going to take some new people to uh, turn it around. Well, uh, a businesswoman very successful uh, named Lisa McLean shocked the world last year by coming out of nowhere and beating a couple of strong Republicans in a primary and then winning the congressional seat over in the 10th congressional district. Is Tudor Dixon that kind of person? I mean, maybe a slightly different background than Lisa McLean, but uh, the same kind of concept, a successful, articulate, 
intelligent uh, female outsider candidate? You know, that's where all of our candidates have been coming from. John James came from outside of the political process. Jack Bergman, you know, bounced onto the scene and, and trounced two sitting state senators and or a former senator and a current senator. Um, David Trott, you know, uh, came out of the business world. Um, uh, Paul Mitchell did the, the exact same thing. So, yeah, that's that's where we've been doing our best. Rick Snyder certainly, you know, fit that, that bill going back to 2010. That's where we're going to find our next governor is outside of uh, the, the four blocks around the state capitol. What about the other two constitutional officers, Attorney General, Secretary of State, uh, Dana Nessel and Jocelyn Benson? Do the Republicans have some obvious candidates to run against those two women? I think Tom Leonard is interested in, in a rematch against Dana Nessel, who's just been a disaster and an embarrassment. Um, uh, and then uh, I don't know of any candidates actively uh, campaigning against Jocelyn Benson yet. But, you know, I'll tell you what. We had a string of secretary of states over many years, starting with Candace Miller and then Terry Land and then Ruth Johnson, who managed to make the process of getting your driver's license absolutely painful, if not delightful. And somehow, Jocelyn Benson managed to bollocks all of that up in just six months. And it's remarkable how she could break something that had been fixed so perfectly. And that was even before COVID. People were having to take a day off of work to get their driver's license renewed. I mean, that's for a lot of people, their, their, their primary form of contact with state government is at that driver's license office. And she managed to turn that into a hellhole again in just six months on the job. So I can't wait until we start campaigning against her. The redistricting commission, the independent commission, um, which is sitting around twiddling its thumbs, waiting for census figures to come in and not necessarily setting the world on fire with the way it's been operating so far. uh, What do you see going forward with that? And are you concerned about the district lines that they may come up with and whether that could put the Republicans at a disadvantage next year. You know, if, if you draw the state relatively fairly, um, it's going to, um, you know, lead to competitive races in a lot of districts that Republicans will win their share of. And I, so I don't worry about that. I, I do worry about the language that causes them to draw districts according to communities of interest. And you have to put that in, you know, six sets of air quotes because nobody knows what it means. And uh, it could be used and abused to draw some really wacky districts. And that's where I think we just have to be on guard, that they don't stretch the definition of community of interest into something totally bizarre. Uh, If you keep actual communities together, you draw cities and counties and townships, you know, in relatively, you know, coherent blocks. You end up with, you know, districts that look a lot like the ones we have. These guys have been winding up a storm now for 30 years that the only reason Republicans are winning elections in the legislature is because of gerrymandering. And it's just so overstated. I mean, most of I know they they point out that the 14th congressional district is rather unsightly. And it is. It's a you know, it's a goofy looking. But it was drawn to comply with the U.S. Federal Voting Rights Act. If we hadn't drawn it that way, they would have gone to court and called us racist for getting rid of a minority-majority district. Most of what looks unsightly on a, on a map is is due to trying to comply with the requirements of the Voting Rights Act. 
What about the impact of President Joe Biden and the Democratic-controlled Congress on the elections next year? I mean, is what they're doing now, from what you've seen, likely to help or hurt uh, Republican chances of holding on to what they've got in the Michigan legislature and or gaining offices like governor uh, next year? I think we should just declare anything that I like or want as infrastructure, and then somebody will pay for it. (laughs) (laughs) They're stretching the the English language in ways that are just so crazy. Um, You know, just giving a raise to every nursing home employee is not infrastructure. Now, maybe we need to do it. They should make the case if they think that's true. But uh, this is a boondoggle. Okay, uh, we could keep talking about this, but you've done a great job. Fred Zwolick, uh, spokesman for Unlock Michigan, of describing... Everything that's going on right now, what's likely to happen between now and the end of 2022. Thank you, Fred Zwolick, for being our guest. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back next week with still more.